Hey, this is Joshua Brown, lead pastor here at Dream Church. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. The thing that has been stirring so much on the inside of me this past couple of weeks, uh, among countless other things, is what it means to restore versus remake. I keep, some of y'all are like, well, yeah, we've heard this. I keep coming back to this. What does it mean to restore something to originality rather than remake something original? Um, we aren't progressing forward in time. We're returning to the beginning of time. Y'all good? Oh, you got some paper? Okay. So, all right, so we're not progressing forward in time in the kingdom. We're actually returning to the beginning of time. Remember what I taught a couple weeks ago. The Hebrew alphabet goes in a circle, never ending, not in a line with a progressive ending. So he's not the alpha and omega in the sense of the Greek alphabet. That's the first word letter of the Greek alphabet is alpha. The last one is omega. So in the Greek, that's correct. But that's not who he is. He's the Hebrew God who doesn't have a beginning and ending. He's everlasting, right? So to call him alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, is right. To call him the Aleph and Tav is more right. I'm going to explain that to you, okay? So... He's not Alpha and Omega in that sense because he has no beginning and no ending. That's Psalm 90. He is Aleph and Tav. As you get, that's the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. As you get to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, you're back at the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? Hang with me for just for a second. All right? I don't want you to lose me. So the Hebrew alphabet goes in a circle. It's hard for us in, in our English language to kind of like comprehend this but or picture it. But our language, if you were at, in school, because, you know, we have some teachers and stuff in the room. If you're at school, you know how most teachers have um, at the top of their walls like the ABCs, especially when you're growing up. So there's A and then it goes all the way to Z. And Z is like on the other side of the classroom. You know what I mean? And so if you start at A, you start here. And if you start at Z, you're way over there because the English language alphabet is just a straight line. It has one distinct beginning and one distinct ending. The Hebrew alphabet, let's say you were in Israel and there's a Hebrew alphabet on the wall. There wouldn't be a A to Z. It would be a circle. So when you start at the beginning and go all the way through the alphabet and get to the last letter, you're back at the beginning again. Never ending. That, this, is, this is so cool. So, listen to this. <clears throat> a physical representation of this is the time shift between B.C. and A.D. This is just a physical manifestation of this. Before Jesus comes, you have time counting down from the beginning. After Jesus comes, comes, dies, is resurrected, there is a time shift that now we're counting back up to the beginning. Y'all with me? So time counts down to Jesus, and now time is counting back up. 
That's not, I mean, a lot of scientists would be like, oh, yeah, that's just how we kind of did time. No, no, no. What that is is a physical manifestation of literally us being in an age where we're going straight back to where this started. Okay? So, this is so a part of his plan that the first phrase in the Bible, which is in the beginning, Genesis 1, ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. So, in the beginning, the first phrase in your Bible, the first phrase, starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Man, how deep do I want to get into this? Just a little deep, just a little deep, okay? So, the first letter, Aleph, in the Hebrew alphabet, if you looked at it, it looks like, um, uh, like a line and then a separation and then another line. Very similar to like X in English. That's what it looks like. And uh, that uh, letter represents how God was one before creation. So that's what the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet represents. The second letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the first letter of the phrase in the beginning. The last letter of that phrase in the beginning is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. So by the time you get to the phrase in the beginning, you're at the end, which is back at the beginning. Are y'all with me? How, but, I mean, just, I just, just think about this for a second, all right? If you want proof that Christianity and all this stuff is real, just take that. I mean, you can't make that up. I guess you could. you got to be really, 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 really smart and maybe a little crazy. You know what I'm saying? But uh, think about that. In the beginning is actually the ending, which is actually the beginning again. So, so when you get to the end of Revelation... You don't close the book and it's over. You get to Revelation 22, get to the last verse, and then you're back at Genesis 1-1. Whoo! Right? Unbelievable. So as I said the last time I spoke, I believe the Lord has shown us it will take at least one generation of unknowns to start this shift back to the beginning. I really believe that. The monarch, and I said this a little bit last week, but just listen to this for a second. This is way less brain power. The monarch butterfly migrates from Mexico to Canada, but it takes four generations to get there. Remember that when I said that a little bit, uh, I think it was last week? The monarch butterfly travels, immigrates, migrates from Mexico to Canada, but it takes four generations to get to Canada. So three generations take the journey knowing all they'll be is the path trotters for the fourth generation to actually make it to the destination. Could it be the reason, man, here we go, off, way off. Could it be the reason that we've never made it to any destination is because there hasn't been one generation willing to be the generation that actually doesn't make it, but instead is the foundation for the next generation that does. See, that don't, that don't get a lot of amens because all of us want to be the famous person. I don't want to be the famous. I want to be the unknown that my daughter can step on top of and see angels flying around the room because dad had no personal destiny I was chasing except him and him alone and at his feet my whole life. You know, you know what I'm saying? See, I, ministry has come at the cost of legacy. You know what I'm saying? 
Ministry has come at, so in other words, you have a lot of pastors who are burning it and burning it and burning it and burning it, and whatever they have left over, they give to the family. And you know what happens? The next generation could care less about the Lord that took their dad. However, however, what if you had a generation that said, the ministry will get done. It ain't even on, the Lord said, on this rock, I will build my church. I'm not even, I can't even build the church. And if I build it, it ain't the church. So, so take that off. So instead, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tend the flame at home and then give whatever's left to ministry. And it ain't going to grow our church to 10,000 people in a year. But it will make my daughter hungry for the Lord when she's 80, just like dad was. And I'll take that. A thousand percent of the time, over a thousand people repeating a prayer and never getting born again. Here we go. There's something interesting in this monarch butterfly story that I just thought of um, as I was studying this. I believe it was Wednesday or Thursday. Um, They also migrate home. So they don't just migrate from Mexico to Canada at some point, they turn around and migrate from Canada back home. Let me say this. They migrate from the destination back to the beginning. So four generations go into a destination, but once they accomplish their purpose there, four more generations take the journey back to originality. Only, listen to this, only the eighth generation makes it back home, but the only way the eighth generation finishes the race or destiny or calling, whatever you want to say there, is for seven generations to be nothing more than path layers. What is this number seven? Perfection, completeness. So the only way the eighth generation makes it back to the beginning with everything they carried with them from the destination is if seven generations say, I'll never make it back there, but I'm okay as long as the eighth generation does. Let me say it like this. Abraham was promised every piece of the promised land and died never owning one acre of the promised land. So was God not faithful? No, he was faithful. You know how he was faithful? Because his great-grandkids owned the promised land. And his great-grandkids owning the promised land was the same as Abraham owning the promised land, except his great-grandkids were still passionate about the Lord because he was willing to see him as faithful even if he never held in his hand any of the promises. I, man, I just, I don't know. Seven generations are nothing more in this sort than unknowns who may have never saw the immediate satisfaction of the promise fulfilled, but whose endurance became the gate for a generation who did not work for it to inherit the fulfillment of what the first generation was promised. Think about this. The first generation feels the call to go to Canada. And then come back home. That's the first generation. The eighth generation 
holds in their hands what the first generation set out because of what they heard. Set out for because of what they heard. So the, let me say it like this. The Lord has promised some of you great ministry. Let's, let's say it like this. My life, I've been prophesied countless times. I was going to have huge ministries and all that other great stuff. Okay? Some of y'all can say amen. Like, man, you're, you're going to change the world. Maybe. I, I'll bet you $1,000 it don't look like what you think, though. You know what I mean? Here's what Most of them, here's what they were saying. Brother, we got two years at best before this thing blows up. So you best be kicking it. That's really what they were saying. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, man, that 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 blessed trumpet's gonna sound. You best be getting people to repeat some prayers. And here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm inheriting the second coming, not bracing for the second coming. <laughs> I, I'm not bra- I'm not sit- I'm not bracing for impact for his second coming. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna inherit his second coming, and the only way I'm going to inherit the second coming is to present a pure and spotless bride without blemish that he comes back to rapture to himself, not escape. You know, so that word called up in 1 Thessalonians that we all think is the rapture, you know what that word is? It's what happens on a wedding night when a groom captures his bride. Let me tell you who's not escaping that room. Either of them. Amen? Right? I mean, you don't have to be weird. It's just reality, right? I, when we got married, I wasn't itching to get out. I was like, I'll stay here the rest of my life. Right? Yet somehow we've warped it to see his coming was a bad thing. You know what I mean? I can't, can't wait to get out of this thing. No, I can't wait to stay. And if you need to go, go ahead. But I'm going to stay. And I'm going to reign with him until the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's going to take generation after generation after generation laying on the altar the personal destiny that the world gave them anyway and inheriting a fascination with his eyes, not what you can gain by using his eyes for your own personal gain. That went over like a lead balloon. All right. So here, here, we are content. This is what I want to talk about today. We are content tending the wineskin rather than obsessing over whether or not we have enough wine. Because the goal has shifted from getting as much wine as possible to tending the wineskin that inherits an overflow and endless amount of wine. Me and Taylor talked about this, I guess it was Tuesday night. We spent a lot of time talking about this. We, I don't know if y'all heard this, and I'm, I'm going to be really uh, sensitive to this, but um, I'm, I'm so sick of seeing news articles where pastors have committed suicide. I'm sick of it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm I, so we we were just sitting there yesterday morning going through the news, and local. I mean, this is down the street. A mega church pastor has done this, and so I just want to say this: if you're part of that church, maybe you're watching this. We're praying for y'all. I've been praying for that family and for you guys. But I, 
we, I can't let this happen anymore. Do you, y'all, do you understand this? Like, we, we cannot let ministry take people, and that's what it's doing. That's what it's doing. When you build ministry on people and you're carrying a load that is not easy and a burden that is not light because you built it on how many people we can get in the door and how big of a show can we do and how many Instagram followers can we get and how many people can we cram in this year compared to last year and how the numbers are going to be higher and how big of buildings can we build. When it's built on all of that, you know what happens? Pastors start feeling the weight to carry something they were never designed to carry. And I'm, I'm really sick of it. I'm, t- I'm tired of it. Pastor, if you're watching this today, because I know a lot of pastors watch this, if you are watching this today, you need to use this time right now to cease building something on you. You need to use this time and look at your church and say, how many times do I not give an apostolic word knowing it's going to cause 10 families to leave? And instead say, maybe it's time for those 10 families to leave. I I don't want people to leave our church, but I will not filter something for our church thinking people are going to leave the church because I value the word of the Lord way more than I value stepping on people's toes and people getting offended when Jesus said you should have no room for offense anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like, people in the church will get offended over everything. And so what the Lord's doing, the Lord's, you know what happens when you play guitar? Is the first few times you play the guitar, your fingers kill you. But after you play it for about six months, you know what happens? You can play it all day long and your fingers are calloused. Do you know what I believe the Lord's doing in us? Callousing us. I mean, I think sometimes he'll tell me to write stuff down that I don't want to write down just to, just to test it. Maybe not. I don't know. That's your thing. So, Here, we're content tending the wineskin rather than obsessing over whether or not we have enough wine. We are becoming the seeds of the restoration of time, space, and creation. That's what we're becoming. So pastors, businessmen and women, artists, etc. will have to move from their craft being their anchor to home being their anchor, even if home comes at the expense of the craft. If your wine skin is tended, you'll always have wine. If you chase after wine, you'll lose it when your wine skin wears out because you haven't been tending it. That I mean that this is the whole message right here. So if you get if you just forget the alphabet stuff if you have, if you have to. All right? If your wine skin is tended, you'll always have enough wine. Let me say, if your wineskin's healthy, you'll never have to worry about having enough. So you don't have to turn there. Let me go to Mark 2 real quick and just read this just as a little reminder, okay? <clears throat> and then I'll go to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings, outside of Song of Songs, is my favorite Old Testament book. I love it, um, especially Elijah. Um, but listen to what Jesus says. He says this. He says, no one sows a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old. And a worse tear is made. 
man, I just... Hey, no one sews an unshrunk piece of cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new separates from the old, and a worse tear is made. New, let me, Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Revelation, we like to use that a lot. Why, what is lukewarm? It's a mixture of hot and cold. Okay? So it's you containing hot in one hand, cold in the other hand, and mixing it together. What he's saying here is, is if you try to sew something new onto a cloak that is old, the new will always pull away from the old because they're never intended to coincide. So the first thing you'll have to do before you receive a new patch is become a new garment. Then what happens when you're washed, instead of the patch shrinking, but the old that's already shrunk remaining like it is, the new and the new shrink and stay together and stay one piece of, let's say, a body. Okay? So when the Lord begins to pour something new out in you, if you haven't become new first, all of a sudden you'll start seeing the new and the old separate. That's called offense. That's exactly what it's called. When you, when you get offended over the word of the Lord, I'm not talking about somebody that did you wrong or whatever. I, I really think you shouldn't get offended over that either. But when you get offended over the word of the Lord, what's happening is, is your old cloth is blending with his new patch. And as that thing begins to pull, the old starts separating from the new. And no one, verse 22, puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the wine is lost. And so are the skins lost. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Okay? So, unshrunk cloth separates from the old. New wine, and I'm going to just give a quick review. New wine Neos, which is brand new, new in age, just created, brand new wine, poured into ancient. The other word for old wineskins is worn out. So new wine poured into a worn out wineskin will cause what is worn out to burst and the new wine and the wineskin to be wasted. So in love, he withholds new wine until you become not a new, a fresh, or a restored wineskin. Same wineskin, just restored. And when you become that, he endlessly begins to pour. So the wineskin that's old is baptized in oil. We're about to read a little bit about oil. It's baptized in oil. And as it comes up out of the oil, it is restored to its original quality. It's restored to in the beginning. When you're born again, you're not created new. You're not a new creation in the sense of he throws away the old, now you're just a brand new guy or girl. What he does is he baptizes you in salvation where you are literally born again, not as a new, freshly made, newly created creation, but you're sent back to the state you were in when you were born. That's why when he tells Nicodemus this, Nicodemus says, so you think I'm going to climb back in my mother's womb? 
That's literally what Nicodemus is saying. He understood it. He understood Jesus was not saying, Nicodemus, I'm going to throw you out and I'm going to have a new person. We'll just name him something else and he'll be something brand new. Jesus was literally telling him what you're about to go through in salvation, what you're asking about, about salvation, is the equivalent to you climbing back in your mother's womb and going through the whole process again. Day one, Veda was completely, my daughter, Veda was completely pure, spotless, had no idea of wrong had no concept of wrong. So for her to be born again would send her back to the place where she had no concept of wrong. See how that works? So when, it, when he creates a new wineskin out of us, he's not throwing us out. He's reinvigorating what has become worn out. He's restoring pliability. I know this is review, but I just let me give you a real quick example of... Um, of kind of what I'm talking about, and then we'll go to 1 Kings 17. New wine is always available. In other words, the accessibility of new wine has nothing to do with the source of wine. It has everything to do with the one receiving the wine. So at our house, as I'm sure a lot of you guys, we have a water hose. Y'all have a water hose at your house? Oh, it's perfect. So we have a water hose, and that water hose is connected to the town of Lexington water. So it's always being fed water. At any time of the day or night, I can go turn that on and water's going to come out. I never think about it. Okay? But, but, if I have an old torn up hose, which we do, connected to this pipe, turn it on, you know what happens? Because it's old, it starts spewing everywhere. There's kinks all in it and they start spewing. And then when you push the trigger, to shoot water out, the pressure is like non-existent. Why? Because the water is being wasted on what is burned out or worn out. If I go to Walmart today, or Lowe's, that's the place to be, I guess. If I go to Lowe's, buy a brand new hose, go up, or let me even say it like this just to stay consistent. Let's say I go home and I take that thing up, and I cover up all the holes and I cover up all the places in the front where it's spewing out, and I put a little, uh, I guess, oil on it to give it some more, like, pliability where it's been dried out from the sun, and then I hook the same hose back up and turn it on. You know what's going to happen? The full pressure is going to be restored. Why? Because all the parts that were worn out have been fixed. So I never have to think twice about whether or not there's going to be water in that spigot when I turn it on. Why? Because it's always there. The thing I have to be conscious of is the container for the endless source of water. Y'all with me? So as long as our wineskin is available and healthy and pliable and new, there's always going to be a pouring of new wine. If we stop tasting new wine, it's always a sign that we have to go back not to the source of the wine, but to the wine skin. Because if he started withholding new wine, it's because there's something in us that has become worn out that he knows if I keep pouring this into that, it's going to burst not just him, but it's going to waste everything I wanted to do in him. This is making sense. Okay, so if some of you are in the secret place, and the past, like, let's say two weeks, three weeks, whatever, it seems like the secret place has just been nothing. You show up, nothing. 
Show up. Nothing. Show up. Lord, please do something. You turn on some worship. Nothing. If, if that's been the case, I say this in love, of course. If that's been the case, it's not because he just decided, you know what? I don't think I want to pour out any wine. It could be that somewhere throughout this quarantine season, you've allowed spots in your wineskin to become worn out. And he loves you enough to not destroy you. Do you know what I'm saying? That's why I say, and this goes for us as a church too. We are one body as a church. So we're not a hundred wineskins. We're one wineskin all together. So if, it, so if the Lord is withholding new wine from the body, that means there are places throughout that wineskin in the body that need to be revitalized. Here's the great thing. He's always ready and willing to revitalize it. He's not asking you, why did you let it get this way? He's not asking you, how did you let it get this way? He's not disappointing. He's just waiting for you to give him the wineskin so he can baptize it in oil again. Y'all with me? Awesome. Matthew, I mean, Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open for you. In other words, your answer isn't found in the search for the answer. Your answer is found in the inheritance from a readied wineskin. Ask and you'll receive. He doesn't say search out the answer and you'll get the answer. He says if you'll ask, why? Because by you asking, what you're actually saying is I trust you have the answer because I'm asking you for the answer. So your trust becomes a manifestation that you have become a wineskin that can receive the answer that you're asking him for. That's why he says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be open. So go to 1 Kings 17 and, uh, and we'll start at verse 1. First Kings 17. I love Elijah so much. This is one bad dude. If you've never read it, 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, and then he kind of just disappears into the distance till the end of the book. Um, but unbelievable stuff. First <coughs> Kings 17. Hopefully you're there by now. Oh, hey, Paul. He just said his YouTube is working. Um, I think that was a message I got earlier. So, all right. 1 Kings 17. I'm going to take a drink of this, and then we'll start. Verse 1 is towards the beginning of your Bible, kind of. And I'm reading this in the NRSV, but a lot of your translations will be very similar. All right. <clears throat> First Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, who is king at that point, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be rain or dew in these years except by my word. Whoa. Elijah, Elijah says this. The Lord doesn't tell him to do this. Elijah says this. He says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew or rain these years except by my word. Whoo! What kind of authority do you have to have to say that? It ain't going to rain till I tell you it's going to rain. That's what I mean, that's what he's saying. So, this see this is why I love Elijah. So then the word of the Lord came to him saying, "Go from here and turn eastward 
and hide yourself by the wadi Cherith, some of you say the brook Cherith, um, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Remember, he, pre- he announced there's going to be a drought. The Lord sends him to a secret place where he's drinking what no one else has because of the word of the Lord that came through him. Let me say that again. Everybody else is in a drought. Elijah is in a secret place where he's drinking what no one else has. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from from the brook. But after a while, it dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was gathering sticks there. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. And he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. What kind of statement? We're going to go eat this and then we're going to die. Don't worry about it. Excuse me? You know what I'm saying? Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, first, circle that, do whatever you need to do. First, before you go eat and die and all that stuff, first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, of Israel. The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. Man, I, I just I felt that all over me as I was reading that. I don't know about y'all. The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said so that she as well as her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not empty, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. I'm almost done. I'm just read through. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. So the son, <clears throat> the son of this woman becomes ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. 
She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. Now remember, think about this. She was about to eat and then die. And he says, Before you do that, give me what you were about to eat and die. She does, and she has enough after that. This time, her son dies, and he says, all right, give me your son. Just listen. He took him from her bosom. Sounds a lot like King James. (coughs) Carried him into the upper room where he was lodging and laid him on his bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? He's okay with your questions, just like Spencer said earlier. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber or upper room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Listen to what she says. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Whew! So Elijah means, My God is Lord. That's what the name Elijah means. My God is Lord. And he speaks a drought over the land, which shuts up rain and dew for years. Not just a couple of weeks. For years. Why would he do this? He didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what? Let's just shut up the heavens for a couple years. You know what I mean? He, why, so why, why is he doing this? Because Baal, the false god worship, that had entered into the scene heavy in Israel was the one that they believed was the storm god. So Elijah stops all storms to prove that Yahweh was the only God. Think about this. So Baal is the storm God. Elijah says, I'll tell you what, there's not going to be any more storms until I say so. So there goes that. You know what I mean? So all the storms cease. There's not even dew on the ground. So what Israel has done is they have invited idolic worship into the culture. And by doing that, they've shifted from being exclusively God's people to entertaining the ideas of these idols. So if there's no rain, they don't go to the Lord and ask for rain. They go to Baal, the storm god, and ask for rain. And then when the Lord in His grace sends rain, they're worshiping Baal. So Elijah comes up as a prophet of the Lord and says, 
this has got to stop. It's not going to rain until all y'all know the Lord is the only one that can send rain. So this is where the story starts. So much so that that's why Elijah was the one to do this, because Elijah's name means, my God is Lord. That's literally what his name is. So he escapes from famine caused by the drought that he spoke and goes to the brook Cherith to be hidden. That's what it says. It says, go and hide yourself, verse 3, by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. East of the Jordan. There's Man, there's so much right there, but I'm going to just hang out right here just for a second. He escapes famine by going into a secret place. Say like this. He escapes pandemic from going into the by going into the secret place. He es he escapes what everybody is out here starving because of, and in the secret place finds an overflow of what no one else has one morsel of. Think about this, right? So while the world is overflowing in fear and overflowing in worry and anxiety and all that stuff, we're in the secret place, and the joy of the Lord is strengthening us. So we have excess of what most people have none of. What's the difference? One is hidden in a place called secret. The other is starving in a place called public. R right? So, so as long as we're content being someone in public, we're going to miss out on the nourishment that we actually need to survive, which is only found in the secret place. Go and shut the door behind you, right? Do something in public, and that'll be your reward. But if you do something in secret, the Lord your God will bless you publicly, right? I mean, th this is, this is everything. So he goes to the secret place. And he starts drinking, and he starts eating. He's being fed by ravens. My dad said, I don't know if my dad's watching this, but my dad said this a few weeks ago. He said, if the Lord, something to the effect, I'm going to butcher this. If the Lord can change the nature of a raven to feed Elijah, he can do whatever you need to feed you. I think that's what he said. Awesome, right? But think, a raven is feeding Elijah. A raven. So cool. So, when the land around us is in drought, the secret place is the place where you need to be planted. Sounds a lot like Psalm 1. Spencer said this last week. Psalm 1, you're like a tree planted by water that bears fruit. Your leaves never wither in and out of season. So that's what the secret place is. The secret place is the tree. You become a tree planted by streams that are always flowing. And as long as the streams are flowing, your leaves are never withering. Okay. So... He tells him, he allows the brook to be dried up because he actually wanted to send him to Zarephath. So, he goes to Zarephath. Zarephath is a Phoenician territory. It's in Phoenician territory. None of this has to make any sense, but I'm going to explain this in a second. Zarephath is in Phoenician territory, which is the heart of Baal worship. So, Zarephath was literally the guts of Baal worship in the entire region, okay? Zarephath is a long way away from Tishbe, which is where he was from. 
So this wasn't just a kind of spot on the map. It was a place that the Lord had to directly send him to do something in that place, or else he probably would have never gone there. So he says, go to Zarephath, to the heart of Baal worship. Where did the whole story start? There's not going to be rain or dew for years except by my word. Why? Because of Baal. So the rain stops, and then he sends Elijah out of the secret place into the guts of worshiping the Baal idolic junk that the Israelites had bought into. And he goes there, and what does he find? A bride without a groom and a son without a dad. <laughs> Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sinai. Live there, for I have commanded a widow to feed you. He gets there, and what does she say? I have nothing, just a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil. I'm gathering sticks. I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may die. So the Lord sends him out of the secret place into a place where a bride is groomless and a son is fatherless. Ironically, the two things that the Lord calls himself, God the Father and Jesus the Bridegroom. And the Holy Spirit, the engagement ring. So he goes to an idol worshiper's territory, to a bride without a groom and a son without a father. He goes and he says, bring me water. That sounds a lot like John 4 when Jesus is sitting at a well and asks a woman for water. You remember that story? Bring, bring me your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You got six. You know what I'm saying? Or what? So he goes, ask for water. When she's going to bring him water, the next thing he asks for is bread. Water and bread. He asks her, I could spend a lot of time on that, but I think I'm going to move to this next part. He asks her to trust Yahweh with the little that she had left, and by doing so, she'd have an endless supply of what she only had a little bit left of. He says, she says, I only have a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Meal is the dry ingredient, and oil is the wet ingredient that, when put together, makes bread. Okay? The two ingredients needed to make bread. So she says, I have a handful of both. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. You're going to actually give everything you got to me. And when you give everything you have to me, you'll never lack again. Let me say this. He's doing what the husband would have done had he been there. The, the husband and father would have been the one going out making sure the family was eating. So they run out of food and he says, you know what, give me what you got and I'll make sure you're fed. And that's what a lot of church people, especially are out trying to feed themselves and do the best they can with what they got left when the Lord's actually saying, if you'll surrender all of it to me, you'll never lack anything again. That's, so tithe, for example, let's just, 
That's the re- people struggle with the tithe because right now people are losing their jobs all over the place and they might need that money. And here's what the Lord is saying. No, I'm asking you to give me everything you got. And if you give me everything you got, you'll never lack money. You know what I'm saying? If you lose your job, if you lose your job, it's just an opportunity for you, you to get the job that you wanted. But it just depends on how you see it. It depends on how you trust. And so what he's, he's doing through Elijah in this moment is he's showing us a picture of what it looks like to shift your focus from how much wine you have to how healthy your wineskin is. Y'all with me? I'm almost done. I know it's a lot. He, she, she's focused on the handful of wine she's got, let's say, in that. Like, I've only got this amount left. And he says, I'll tell you what. You start focusing on your wineskin, I'll make sure you'll have wine for the rest of your life, or at least until it rains again and the land produces the wine you need. She decided that she was going to taste the last bit of bread and oil, meal and oil, that she had left and died. Not only was she about to die, but her legacy was about to die with her. Think, Think about this, okay? She's focused on what she has, and because she's focused on what she has, her legacy is also about to die in the process. Making connections, right? Right? Because we focus on getting wine, we don't see that our legacy is one mil away from dying. Listen, I know for some of y'all, they're just bouncing off. I'm cool with that because there's a handful that you're, you're tasting something you've never tasted before. I'm cool. All right, our, we have a le- we have legacy that is dying because all we can focus on is what we got, and what the Lord is trying to do is give Him everything we got, tend the flame, and as we tend the flame, we'll have everything we ever need. Jesus, Jesus is surrounded by thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and He, he says, "You know what? I think I want to feed these people." What did he do? Did he go get a job nine to five and busted and busted and busted until he saved up enough money and then bam, he fed the people? Go get a corporate job? Go move away because you don't want to live at home anymore? Nope. You know what he did? He said, all right, give me what you got. And as they released to him all that they had left, he began to multiply until everybody had more than enough. So he's in the heart of Baal worship. Bread represents provision. Think about manna. Think about Jesus multiplying it. Think about the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, provision, etc. Oil represents anointing. I got I'm gonna get through the last bit of this. I'm gonna skip a little bit. So the Lord provides, she releases, they have enough as long as they need it, and then her son dies. Her son loses breath. Elijah, at this point, has moved into the house. So Elijah's living there. Okay? So they go from worshiping Baal in the heart of Baal worship to now the man of the Lord living in their upper room. So the son dies. Elijah takes the son to the upper room spreads him out on the bed, prays three times over him, and the son is revived. So legacy goes from one meal away from death 
to not just alive, but resurrected life. Resurrection is way more alive than alive. Because resurrection life is after you've tasted death already. So not only was he alive, he was alive after death. So what the Lord is showing us here is that if we'll shift our focus from what we have to who we are, in the process, our legacy won't just go from one meal away from death to now just surviving. Our legacy will actually begin to taste what it means to be in resurrection life. None of us know what that means. I mean, none of us have even lived in that. The Old Testament was a type and shadow. Spencer, Spencer says this a lot. The Old Testament was a type and shadow of Jesus. The New Testament is a type and shadow of resurrection. So we pray for healing. Why? These bodies aren't going to decay, right? These bodies are going to be resurrected. So when somebody is healed, they're tasting a piece of what resurrection life will be in fullness. When somebody is saved, they wake up, they go to the same job, they do the same things, their mind has changed, but what they are is a type and shadow of the reality that will be eternally once the resurrection takes place. Do you see how that happens? So this boy, this legacy, goes from fatherless and death to fathered and resurrected, all because one woman goes from we're going to die because this is all we got left to I'm going to give God all that we have left and in the process never lack again. With me. So, last page. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Some of us, I'm just hit this right here and then I'm going to wrap it up. Actually, Daniel, can you come up here and play keys? I don't think I want to do that last song, but go ahead and come up here. I think I just want to hang out for a second right here. This is what happens when somebody else preaches a week. <laughs> um, I'm reading this story, and as I'm reading this story, I can't help but think, and I can't, I can't stress this enough, and I don't want to sound too theological, but this is an area that has no clue who Yahweh even is. So for a man of God to come into the area and ask for the last bit of food they have before they died and them to give it to him is insane. Do you know what I'm saying? One woman, one woman willing to do something that everyone else thought was crazy that everyone else probably mocked her for, not only opened up the floodgates over her life, but it led to her legacy being revived. I, want, I wonder, you know what that word revived is? Literally, revival. It's literally the root word for the word revival. I wonder, I wonder if the key to revival is not us striking up some matches, I wonder if the key to revival is us releasing everything that's keeping our wineskin worn out. I, I can't stress. If, if your wineskin is intact, we'll have revival for the rest of our lives. 
It'll never end. Why did every revival in history end? Because at some point, they were a wineskin that received a new wine. And when they received the new wine, their focus went from tending the wineskin to now being fascinated with how much wine they had. And so for seven years, eight years, ten years, they drank and they drank and they drank and they drank. And while they were drinking and while they were drunk on goodness and while they were tasting goodness, the wineskin was drying out. But because they were so focused on wine, not the wine skin, when they got to the last drop of wine, there was no more. Why? Because the wine skin had died in the process. And I'm telling you right now, revivals throughout history would have never ended if the wine had been an inheritance that they received by hosting the wineskin presence that would keep them pliable rather than being constantly obsessed with how much they had. Say like this, if we could stop focusing on how many people we have in our churches and instead presence was all we needed to call it success, we would see people packed in every church. When did presence stop being enough? I mean, I'm just, when, when did presence stop being enough for us? That's dangerous. There's people in China that have half a page of a Bible, and the Lord's raising the dead there. There's a lot of people in America that have 185 translations on your cell phone that we never touch, and the Lord is withholding wine, not because he doesn't do that anymore, but because we don't do that anymore. Maybe cessation theology, here we go, maybe cessationist theology has nothing to do with God and has everything to do with us. It's not the one day the Lord just just decided, I don't want to talk anymore. It was that his people decided one day, you know what? I don't want to listen anymore. He never stopped talking. We stopped listening. He never stopped pouring out wine. We let ourselves get to the point where we couldn't receive it anymore. Right? Now, you don't have to agree with it. It's just it's truth. It's truth. Well, we, don't, we don't see people healed left and right, not because the Lord doesn't want to do that anymore. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, never changing. So that ain't it. It's not an issue with the wine. You know what it's the issue of? The wineskin. The reason we don't talk about this a lot is because we can blame the wine and never have to touch us. It's easy to say the Lord doesn't want to do that anymore because then we never have to look at ourselves in the mirror. But if you start questioning the wineskin and the pliability and the freshness of the wineskin, you have to let him stare you in the eyes until every false reality that is present within you dies. That is not comfortable. It causes you to be offended. It causes your toes to be stepped on and trampled on and stomped on and your feelings to be hurt and you not understanding any of this. It causes you to step into territory that you can't see five feet in front of you. But if you will, I, re- I read this last week. I'm, I'm just I'm going to wrap it up right here. I read this last week, the uh, the kingdom man thing, and all I've been singing 
There's a song by Jason Upton, which is awesome, by the way. It's my favorite. There's a song by Jason Upton, and the song literally says, it's a lonely thing to be wild and free. It's a, it's a, like, it's a lonely thing to be wild and free. And I, I listen to that over and over, especially in this season, over and over and over and over. Because when you're in a cage, people will pay money to come see you. When you're in a cage, people will pay money to come see the show. But when you're wild and free, I'm telling you right now, we were designed to be wild and free. And I see the Lord unlocking cages. This is literally the vision I got this week. And actually, go ahead and close your eyes. I just want you to see this. Uh, the Lord gave me this vision that he has, we've been in cages, and he's unlocked and opened the door of the cages, but we're afraid of what's waiting on the outside of the cage because we've become so accustomed to living in the cage. I see this. I see it. It's like a zoo that you've become so accustomed to being fed what you needed, to being given the nutrients you needed, to people looking at you day and night, to you being the poster boy for social media, like that that type of thing, that that um, very uh, facade type thing that's been your life, whether some people have done that to you or whether you've done it to yourself. And somebody has opened the cage and said, you're free now, but you don't even know what freedom is anymore. That's what I see this week. I see the Lord with a giant barrel of wine. And I see, literally, I see this right now. I see him with tears streaming down his face because he wants so much to pour it out. But he knows if he does that some of us would be destroyed in the process because we can't carry it right now. That is not a bad thing. It's a great thing to understand so that you can get to the place that you can actually carry it. I'm talking to myself too. What are places that I haven't trusted him for? Where, for? This is just for me. Let me be vulnerable for a second. What are the places that I have made decisions or made statements or did whatever because I feared man more than I feared the Lord? That's what I've been asking myself lately. And there have been times. Not anymore. But I, I want all that he can give me. I want everything he's got to give and I don't want him to withhold anything. And the only thing keeping me from that place is not the wine and it's not the Lord. It's me posturing myself in my interior world to receive all that he actually wants to give me. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information on Dream Church or to give, visit dreamcolumbia.com. We hope you have a great week.